You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week saw the British Medical Association's annual representatives meeting. Around 500 doctors made their way to Brighton on England's south coast to discuss a whole raft of issues affecting doctors, patients and the NHS. Deborah Cohen and Helen Morant will be telling us about that. Also this week, Haiti might be out of the headlines, but there's still a lot of work going on there. We have the second part of Sophie Ari's report about Haiti and the medical situation there. Many people are hugely grateful that at last they can get some care, and it's good care. Now to the BMA's annual representatives meeting. The BMJ always has lots of stories about that, and they'll be available on the website. But one person who was there is Deb Cohen, our features editor. So, um, so Deb, what did you think of the conference this time? I mean, some of the the kind of same issues came up again: um, commercialisation of the NHS and assisted suicide, alcohol, tobacco. You know, there, there were some um, familiar familiar debates, but there were there were a few new ones as well. I mean, ones that got particularly heated. There was a debate about homeopathy and whether the NHS um, should continue to fund homeopathy. This kind of debate started, I mean, it's been rumbling on generally for a while, but for the BMA, it started off in May when junior doctor Tom Dolphin um, described homeopathy as being like witchcraft. And and so descending on the BMA were lots of homeopathy protesters, people protesting for homeopathy, and actually uh, a coven of witches descended (laughs) at the BMA conference um, which made Tom Dolphin apologise to witches for confusing them with homeopaths. But on the more serious side, it, what, it, what it ended up being slightly, I mean, maybe artificially, was those that were arguing against um, homeopathy were looking at the scientific evidence or lack thereof. And those that were arguing that the NHS should continue to fund homeopathy were those that were thinking about, well, what do we do about patients with you know, intractable headaches with chronic pain where there is no underlying pathology, how do we treat them? And sometimes homeopathy, for one reason or another, it might be the placebo effect, seems to work for some people. So, so that was quite an interesting debate because, you know, it had, had a bit of science and it had a bit of, bit of patience in and things like that. For people outside the UK, the BMA is a body that represents doctors. It's the GMC that does the professional regulation. So how influential is the BMA conference and, and things discussed there? The BMA, I mean, all I can say is, um, you know, I wish the BMA were my trade union, if you like. You know, I think they wield a lot of power and a lot of influence um, um, because what happens is they, they go to conference, vote on the motions, and this should become BMA policy. And that means that, you know, the BMA will focus on this particular area and look into it in more depth before they make a statement on it. So once that's done, once they've made a statement, are they quite good at getting that pushed through either legislation um, at Westminster or to the GMC? I don't know how much impact they have with the GMC, but certainly they have a they have quite a lot of power with with government, and government do tend to listen, or they don't listen to the BMA at their peril. Okay, so we'll have to wait to see how much of this gets taken any further. Then, yep, it'll be yeah, watch this space. I think someone else who was at the conference was BMJ Learning's Helen Morant. Helen, you were doing a series of podcasts that'll be on the Learning website in a few weeks' time. What were you doing there? 
Well, Duncan, we were asked to go to the ARM by the BMA Board of Science, who organise the Victor Horsley Memorial Lectures. And they're three lectures that happen on the three days of the ARM, which are educational. And they get experts in the field to um, deliver a lecture on their specialist subject. And we've interviewed each of the lecturers. And as you say, they're going to be modules on the learning site soon, those interviews. And one of the people you are interviewing is Martin McKee, and he's also written something that was uh, in the BMJ recently, which has uh, garnered quite a lot of attention. So what was he speaking about? Well, Martin McKee was talking about the same topic as his paper, really, which was the effect of a recession on healthcare. When I interviewed him, we started off by talking about the economic situation in the country at the moment and what doctors and health professionals should know about economics. Economics can sometimes look very confusing. Adam Smith described it as the dismal science. And we often take on trust what we read in the newspapers, what we hear from politicians. I would hope that health professionals, physicians, general practitioners would be a little bit more sceptical about what they read. And also to ask what are the implications of what's being advocated for them and for their patients and for their families and engage in the debate rather than leaving it to others. Martin felt that health professionals had a really important role in the debate. Well, I'm a little bit hesitant to add anything else to the workload of uh, busy general practitioners, but certainly there are many good examples over the years of uh, general practitioners and, and other health professionals who have done a great deal to bring to our attention the health effects of government and and other policies, and in many ways make the invisible visible. Many of the problems that we are likely to face are going to be uh, affecting people who often are invisible to politicians. They're the people who live in the margins of society, but they're the people who are very visible to the general practitioners. And if they can be the voice of those marginalised groups, then I think they will be doing us a great service. I asked how we measured recession and he had some quite interesting, no really, some quite interesting things to say about GDP. There have been many questions about the way in which we measure the progress of nations. Typically when we look at the economic performance, we use something called um, gross domestic product or gross national product. The difficulty is that both are essentially the sum of transactions in an economy that involve money passing from one person to another. So if you have a crime spree, uh, GDP will go up as people spent more on security guards and burglar alarms and so on. If you have a major pollution uh, like the uh, BP spill in the, uh, in the Gulf of Mexico at the minute, again, GDP will go up because of the cost of cleaning that up. On the other hand, GDP takes no account of unpaid work, the voluntary work that often makes a major contribution to people's happiness. So researchers have uh, looked at a number of alternative measures. One is called the Genuine Progress Indicator that takes account of many of these factors and shows, in fact, that in the United States, that although GDP has been rising, the uh, General Progress Indicator has not been, and this may explain some of the reason why, despite the apparent increased wealth, people are not much happier. Uh, the, another one is called the, in, uh, the Index of Sustainable Economic Welfare, which looks at the damage that we're doing to our environment and the sustainability of uh, what of how we're doing, because, of course, there are countries that are seeing very rapid economic growth, but, of course, they're depleting their resources, and, again, it's not sustainable. Uh, Robert Kennedy, uh, the uh, brother of the late president, uh, put it very well. He said that GDP measures everything except that which makes life worthwhile. So regardless of how you measure it, I think everyone kind of agrees that we're in a recession now and everything's all about cuts, 
cuts to welfare, cuts to everything. Um, did you talk about that with him? We did talk about the cuts. Um, and Martin's got quite an interesting take. I think there are two issues to consider here. One is whether the economic programme that has been set out by the government is actually good for the economy. And clearly there is much debate about that with a number of very eminent economists suggesting that that is not the case. But of course, clearly, we're more interested in whether it's good in health terms. There is a lot of evidence that there will be problems. And I think what we can do is almost in a way that we, we can consider ourselves as the canary in the uh, the coal mine. We're the, the uh, as physicians, the early warning system. We can identify where problems are already arising. And in fact, at my talk today and the questions that were being raised, a number of people did comment that they were already seeing the, the effects of uh, an anxiety arising uh, about future job losses and so on. We can bring that to the attention of politicians and, I think, to the public. Amongst all these cuts, the NHS has been ring-fenced. Um, does he think that's a good idea? Well, it's a big issue politically, ring-fencing. And um, I asked Martin if it, if it was actually useful for saving money. And, and he gave us some very interesting things to think about, especially concerning the importance of health promotion in saving money. I think that's rather too simplistic because, unfortunately, there aren't any easy answers to this. We need to make sure that there is much more uh, joined up thinking in all of this. We need to look upon it as an integrated whole. We need a healthier population. If we have a healthier population, then we will have much less demand for health care. If we really want to reduce health care spending, and I have no problem with reducing health care spending if it's done properly, then the way to do that is to promote the health of our population. And that's what we already see in countries like Japan, where they have a low expenditure in healthcare and a very healthy population. But there is also a very strong argument for looking across the spectrum to improve health as a means of promoting economic growth. And that's where I think we need to look at the welfare, the way we spend money on welfare, to make sure that we do get those people who can work back into work to facilitate their passage back in and recognise that that will require some expenditure from time to time, but it will be better for the country in the long run. I think if we look across Europe, we do see some very good examples of joined up thinking. I'm looking in particular at the example of some of the Scandinavian countries, Finland, where they're looking at joining together the budgets of, of employment, healthcare, and social care. Because otherwise, there's a danger that people get shunted between different budget headings. It's very easy for uh, social services not to provide places so that people end up staying inappropriately in hospital. Uh, easy for the healthcare system not to look at how it can intervene to get people back into work. So having those sort of joined up connections can help, I think, to look at uh, the, the totality of what we're trying to achieve, which is to promote a healthier, wealthier population. The full interview with Martin McKee and a transcript of the lecture will be available in as BMJ learning modules shortly, along with the other two lecturers, which was Ian Banks talking about men's health and Professor Peter Rothwell from Oxford talking about stroke research, which was a really interesting insight. Great. Well, we'll look forward to that. Thanks, Helen. Now we have the second half of Sophie Ari's report about Haiti. Sophie's a freelance journalist and has recently returned from a trip to Haiti for the BMJ. She spent time at the NGO conferences as they decide how to spend the relief money and also with doctors working on the ground. The first half of her report is available on the BMJ podcast from the 18th of June 2010 and you can also read her feature online on bmj.com. 
So, Sophie, you spent time with doctors from MSF and from the International Medical Corps. Now, now that the triage system has ended and they're managing to provide some good basic care for people in Haiti, what do they think the next challenges are going to be? Um, well, in the last few weeks, first the rainy season and then the hurricane season began. And although the earthquake emergency itself is seen to be over as an emergency, their fear is that any day now the rains and the hurricanes will start to really affect the conditions in which so many people are now living, which are so much more precarious than they were a year ago. And that has huge knock-on effects. A whole camp set up for displaced people is flooded and those people no longer can stay there. More generally, there's obviously great concern that all sorts of respiratory diseases and waterborne diseases will start to flourish. And there has been a major vaccination campaign and so far there haven't been any major outbreaks of any of those diseases, but the worst rains and the worst hurricanes haven't come yet. So this is what the NGOs are bracing for. They're also, sadly, preparing for there to be outbreaks of violence which might be provoked by a new wave of bad weather causing added troubles for people. But at the same time, the growing political tensions may, many feel that they, they will erupt in coming months and that that, again, will mean that healthcare providers suddenly have an influx of injured people due to riots or worse. How are the public, the patients, coping? Are they worried about their healthcare system and that it's not going to be able to cope? Um, no, I think for many patients, it's the first time in their life that they've had any good healthcare. Before the earthquake, the state healthcare system charged not huge amounts, but for Haitians, even a small amount can mean that you just can't go to see the doctor. One Haitian doctor described to me how you, if, if a surgeon needed plastic gloves, the patient would have to go out and buy them and bring them back to the hospital. This is the level at which things were before the earthquake. And suddenly, international aid agencies are providing a level of care that's acceptable on, on international standards and that's free. So many people are hugely grateful that at last they can get some care and it's good care. Um, so the overall atmosphere that I felt in the hospitals I visited was a, a sort of gratitude but great need as well and a sort of desperate need for help. But at least people are getting it. So if this is the first time that good care has been provided, how do the native health care workers feel about that? Do they feel like they're being usurped by the NGOs? There seem to be difficulties you know, there are basic things. The Ministry of Health has not been able to pay a lot of its staff since before the earthquake. On top of that, many of those, all of those Ministry of Health staff have gone through uh, horrific times recently that are affecting their personal lives hugely. Some of them can't get to work because they haven't got any petrol to put in their car. Or mm -hmm. if you're not being paid and you've lost your house and you've got to look after your family, rather than go to the hospital to do your job, you probably find some other way to try and earn a bit of money. Mm -hmm. So lots of the staff haven't even been coming to work um, while the NGOs have been setting up and running very efficient teams. And now what they're trying to do is work more and more to encourage those staff to learn and, and take over what the NGOs have created. You talked before about how WHO and the NGOs are empowering the Haitian Health Ministry to take back some of the control about how healthcare is provided, spending some of this money from, from the WHO. 
will some of that autonomy and uh, influence trickle down to these healthcare workers who are poorly paid and are finding it tough to work? People would like it to, and there's a great sense that there's a huge opportunity right now to create something better in Haiti for the long term than what it had before the earthquake. And there's still, most people who I spoke to felt that there is still a chance to do that. Depends very much on the next wave of funding materialising and will enough of it arrive to really put into effect the ideas that um, the government and the UN together are talking about. Sophie, thanks for joining us. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week with more stories from the world of medicine. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.